All right, uh, we're going to get started here. Thank you all very much for sticking with us all day. I know it's been a long day, lots of information to digest, um, so we'll kick this off. It's the uh, same format that you guys have been used to all day, about 35, 40 minutes of uh, panel discussion, and then 15 to 20 minutes there at the end for uh, questions. Um, just say now, and I'll repeat later, if uh, you have a question, we ask that you, you ask a question and um, you know, not, not give a speech or an opinion, so just so we can get as many people uh, the opportunity to ask, um, speak your mind, and uh, you know, we can chat later afterwards, but just the, if you're going to line up, we'll ask a question, and we'll get moving quickly that way. So I'll do a brief introduction, and then we'll get right to it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Immediately to my left is Representative Rafael Anchia from Dallas. He's represented House District 103 since 2005. He is currently the chairman of the House International Trade and Intergovernmental Affairs Committee and sits on the excuse me, Pensions Committee and the House Select Committee on State and Federal Power and Responsibility. He also serves as the chairman of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and is a managing partner of, how do you pronounce that? Civitas. Civitas. Civitas, Capital, a private equity firm. Next to him is Mr. John Varela, who joined the uh, Borderplex Alliance out in El Paso, Texas, where he leads efforts to promote economic development in the tri-state areas, uh, including El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, and the southern New Mexico area. Uh, previously, he served as New Mexico's Economic Devo Development Secretary, <coughs> excuse me, under Governor Susana Martinez, also a native El Pasoan. Uh, and he's also the Assistant Attorney General, of, uh, was the Assistant Attorney General of uh, New Mexico and the Director of the Civil Division there. Next to him is Pierre Arenas, who is a labor economist and researcher focusing on the labor market impacts of immigration and U.S. immigration policy. She's a senior fellow at the Tower Center for Political Studies at SMU, and she previously served as a senior economist for the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Last but not least is Chairman Richard Peña Raymond, Democrat from Laredo, who has represented House District 42 since 2001. He serves as the chairman of the House Human Services Committee and also sits on the Health and Human Services Transition Oversight and Ways and Means Committees. A big round of applause for our panelists before we get started. So the, uh, the topic is fixing NAFTA. Um, and I guess there are some people that would ask the question, uh, is NAFTA broken? And I guess I just want to start off by saying, would we be having this discussion had it been President Clinton and not President Trump? Because it seemed like people from the border region were uh, sort of along the lines of NAFTA is uh, NAFTA's okay. So I just will, I'll start off with whoever wants to take that. So fixing NAFTA, is NAFTA broken? What needs to be fixed about it? No. No. Nothing, nothing's wrong? <laughs> could, could you elaborate? Well, first, I, uh, almost as a courtesy, I think, uh, do, do we know why these folks are standing up? I'm sorry, I don't know, with tape on their mouths. Well, if they, huh? I, I have no idea. I mean, if they Does, would paid, paid like admission, this? I don't know. If, I'm not security. I don't know if that's against the rules. But if, they, yeah. if they're attending and they paid, I think. Uh, well, OK, anyway. Um, you know, I'm from Laredo, of course, right. and, and have been representing Laredo since uh, January of 2001 in the State House, and uh, that's for six years before that, the surrounding counties. And um, uh, Laredo is the largest uh, inland port, the busiest inland port in America. And it is, on most days, the second busiest port in America, period. And we don't have a water port, right? We don't have ships that, that come up to, to Laredo. So trade, of course, is very, very important to us. Uh, it's a big deal for us. Uh, we think it's a big deal for the, the state and for the country. Uh, and uh, I wasn't really trying to be flip. I'm sure, of course, our chairman over here, who I look up to on these issues, uh, and I respect a great deal, 
uh, our other two panelists who I'm sure will have a lot to share. Uh, I've tried, you know, I've tried to study uh, what's going on with NAFTA. And, you know, as I was uh, talking to one of, the, one of my uh, friends in Laredo yesterday, who's a business, a business guy, I've been in business for 30 years. And he says, you know, you, you know when you have a long-term contract, uh, he said, in my business, uh, I have a lot of 20-year contracts. And he said, at the end of 20 years, we kind of look back, we renegotiate and kind of see where things are. The changes, he said, are never that big, but, but they matter. Uh, and so I understand the sort of general concept of uh, it's, been a, it's been a while, let's go back and, and look at NAFTA. Uh, but I also believe that the reason we're even discussing it, we have this panel today, is because, you know, someone running for president, namely Donald Trump, made it such a big issue last year, calling it, as he does in his way, the worst agreement in the history of the country. Uh, there's no middle ground with him on that kind of stuff, right? And that he would tear it up if he became president. Um, now, if you sat down with Donald Trump, uh, President Trump, I guess, and asked him to explain, you know, uh, in a way, let's say, like that Bill Clinton could, uh, what was wrong with the agreement. I'm, I, I don't know how deeply he could get into that discussion. Uh, but, uh, hey, I'm for making uh, anything that we have better. That's why we're, we run for office, right? Rafael and I, we try to help make things better. Uh, but uh, the more I read and the more I try to study this, I, I really don't know what the significant changes are that need to be made or that could be made that, as a whole, would help North America. Ms. Renas, you want to you chime in on whether or not this is broken or not? I mean, you, you come from it from a, more of a policy perspective. Um, what, what sure, in a research perspective, right. I guess. So just more generally, I mean, NAFTA, I think, has been on net, the research shows, um, beneficial to the United States, uh, beneficial to Canada and to Mexico. Uh, and I think that in particular, being here in Texas, uh, Texas is actually one of the largest beneficiaries of NAFTA in the sense that under NAFTA, this state became uh, the largest exporting state in the nation. So far ahead of California, who's second. So we have between, depending on the year, between 250 and 280 billion dollars in exports, um, of which about 100 billion are to Mexico. So Mexico is our number one trading partner. And also, if we look at regionally in terms of uh, how the border has thrived uh, after an initial transition period, I will say, because it's not like it's not like trade comes automatically and everybody benefits. Trade actually initially creates winners and losers. There's a transition period. We saw that in El Paso. There were huge layoffs in the apparel industry. Some of that industry went away. But what happens over time is that uh, you know, business investment comes in. Industries grew up around the trade that grew in El Paso and in Laredo and in the other border cities. And so it became, instead of apparel manufacturing, it became uh, you know, board, uh, business services, logistics, transportation, so whether trucking, warehousing, and so forth. So that's the way in which the economy adjusts. So that after a period of time, you know, the economy settles down and then, you know, you resume growth and, and, and so forth. And I think what the important point is to do is to the extent that you change NAFTA significantly now or you take it away, the problem is, is that you start over again. So basically what our economy has done regionally uh, is adjusted to the trade agreement. And it's true nationally as well. And companies have set, have set up these you know, uh, logistics chains and production sharing. And so this has been beneficial for them, obviously. And so what happens um, once you start the clock over again is there will be another transition period. So you're actually initially going to get a worse outcome with layoffs and, and, and closings and that type of thing. So it really it, it's unfortunate in that respect. Mr. Mr. Yeah, thank you. Uh, 
Thank you all for being here, by the way, and uh, no doubt that uh, I, I'm firmly in the camp of uh, modernizing and strengthening NAFTA. Coming from the border area, it's very, very important to understand the symbiotic relationship that we have with our neighbors to the south. Um, and unlike uh, the rhetoric in Washington, D.C., we do not view Mexico as an economic foe nor a thief of American jobs. We view it simply as an economic ally. The rhetoric also that characterizes our southern neighbors other than uh, friends is also to me discouraging, to say the least. But look, NAFTA was ratified in 1994. It's a 23-year-old agreement. The world has changed dramatically uh, since 1994, and we need to strengthen and modernize it and recognize that symbiotic relationship that we have not only with Mexico, but our northern neighbors as well. This trilateral agreement has created between five to six million American jobs and 300,000 jobs in our borderplex region, which again is defined as Ciudad Juarez, southern New Mexico, and El Paso County, has created 300,000 well-paying jobs, manufacturing jobs, in our region. And so this important agreement needs to be continued. The Monday after Mr. Trump's inaugural, I dropped an opinion piece, which is in the Hill uh, magazine, that talked about improving and modernizing NAFTA in five ways. Number one was energy. Imagine if we could create a North American energy union between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Uh, using traditional and renewable sources of energy. Second was infrastructure. Third was e-commerce and uh, technology. Didn't really exist in 1994. Fourth is uh, some environmental uh, agreements. Uh, much has been made in technology in the environmental area, especially water reuse technology. And then finally, the thorniest of the bunch is, is, uh, is labor. But we have a TN uh, visa program that was created under NAFTA that can be modernized, can be strengthened, that would uh, respect workers' rights, and by the same token, provide for uh, job opportunities and hope for people on both sides of the border. So those were the things that uh, certainly we've recommended, that I've recommended on behalf of the Borderplex Alliance. And uh, we're hopeful, uh, trying to be optimistic, as today started uh, the third round in Ottawa of an NAFTA renegotiation. So we're in a very critical time. And I'm hopeful, however, that we will have a, a good agreement and a good renegotiation agreement that benefits uh, all three uh, nations. Mr. Anchia, I'll, I'll change it up a little bit. You're known in the legislature, as, as are a lot of your colleagues, but you, know, you, uh, you like to have a voice for, for immigrants and for people that need you know, some sort of, of defending. And I, and I apologize, uh, I did not mention that our, our fifth uh, panelist, Lisa Almanza, is not able to, to join us. She has uh, some uh, personal issues to deal with uh, post-Hurricane Harvey, so I apologize for not mentioning that earlier. But she is part of a group called uh, Austin Tan Cerca de la Frontera, which uh, was founded after a group of San Antonio uh, seamstresses uh, all got uh, laid off after NAFTA went into effect. So she is obviously uh, uh, against these trade pacts. Um, and Mr. Anchea, we're speaking, you know, before, before the microphones went on, and I asked him, you know, was NAFTA good or bad? He said, well, it depends on, on who, you, uh, who you speak to in both Mexico and the United States. Um, so just on the, on the flip side of the coin, um, af after NAFTA, you know, uh, agricultural exports to Mexico doubled from 4.6 to 9.8 billion tons, uh, according to a 2014 study. Uh, corn producers suffered. Uh, there's some uh, uh, farmers, mainly in the pork industry, that suffered. So how, what would you tell those folks um, that should be fixed moving forward with NAFTA? 
So a couple things. First is that the benefits of trade aren't evenly distributed, unfortunately. And that's why tariff schedules need to be set up in such a way uh, so that when you phase out tariffs, you provide an adjustment period for a lot of these industries. There are, there are uh, undoubtedly a lot more winners than there were losers, but uh, one of the improvements that I think we, we could make in a, a NAFTA 2.0 and NAFTA Next would be uh, focusing a little bit more on trade adjustment and skills retraining. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, who were left behind by NAFTA uh, who should have access to a more well-funded and abundant and comprehensive uh, suite of services that allow them to adjust back into the economy. All of that being said, even the most aggressive assessments of uh, NAFTA's possible negative impact on the, on the U.S. economy is about 700,000 jobs. And if you think about 700,000 jobs, even if you take that at face value and you divide that by the number of years in the agreement, that's about 28,000 jobs a year. And to put that into further perspective, if you're, the uh, U.S. economy in August of 2017 alone churned or created about 210,000 jobs. Uh, so it's a really small percentage of job losses. Even if you take that 700,000 as directly attributable to NAFTA, it's, it's actually uh, just a fraction of the churn of jobs in our economy on, on, a, on a monthly basis. I will further note that there have been some very credible studies that suggest that um, technology uh, and efficiency, automation, have been the major drivers of job losses in the U.S. manufacturing sectors and not trade agreements. So a lot of times NAFTA is a convenient punching bag for politicians um, like the president or, or like members of my party who like to demonize uh, uh, trade agreements. But the reality is that automation represents a, a, an abundantly greater percentage of dislocation and job losses in the United States. Um, so that's so to the people who have lost their jobs, and, and undoubtedly that's the case. On a utilitarian basis, you would say that the, the benefits have been, as Pia mentioned, substantially greater. Uh, but we can't forget about the people who are lost behind. We need to pro provide them those wraparound services that they need to make sure that they have a viable career going forward. Miss uh, Miss Reynos, um, there's there's been a lot of talk, uh, a lot of reports, and a lot of publicity about Mr. President Benyamin's. A visit uh, with Chinese leaders earlier this month. Um, there's been some talk that you know Me Mexico. What's to stop Mexico from saying, you know what, the Yankee president doesn't like me. I'm going to go elsewhere. I mean, can is it viable for Mexico to do that? And how much harm economically would would Texas face if he went that route? Well, let me take the question another way, since I'm not supposed to talk about politics. So let me say, uh, so suppose you know, so suppose because you bring up China. I mean, suppose we got rid of NAFTA. Who would be the main beneficiary? China. <laughs> Suppose we, uh, you know, the, the further we get away from Canada and Mexico, the more influence the other trading nations will have, of which, you know, the, the gorilla in the room is going to be China. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of things we have to think about when we complain about NAFTA and the effects of trade, but we still have to think we still live under the World Trade Organization agreement where, uh, you know, there's all the Asian nations, including China. And so what would happen if we got rid of NAFTA? is that, you know, obviously they would have more influence, there would be far more trade with those nations likely, less trade with our neighbors. And then also, the other thing I'd like to point out is if we went back to, because if we left NAFTA, if we went back to where trade, where, what tariffs were before NAFTA took effect, actually our tariffs that we faced exporting to Mexico were much, much higher than the tariffs that Mexicans faced exporting to the United States. So we would actually be on far worse terms 
uh, relative to where Mexico would be. Mr. Mr. Uh, P.S. exactly right. Look, the fact is Mexico has 45 free trade agreements or so with other countries around the world, and it's incumbent upon the leaders of Mexico, including President Peña Nieto, to start diversifying his economic basket, especially when it comes to foreign direct investment. I think that that is very clear. Uh, I can tell you that just the anti-Mexico rhetoric, just the rhetoric, without any action, is putting Mexico in a corner, politically and policy-wise. Mr. Trump's rhetoric has been incredibly damaging to that bilateral relationship that has taken decades to develop in terms of trust and understanding. And to be quite candid, uh, words do have meaning, especially when they come from the White House. Notwithstanding any kind of action that hasn't even taken place yet. The threatened border adjustment tax that people were considering was direct aim, let's be honest, a direct aim at Mexico, I believe. With a levy to 20% import duty, actually a tax, I call it a consumer tax. And everything from automobiles to other, other consumer goods. But if you're in Mexico and you're in Los Pinos, like Mr. Peña Nieto is, what would you do? And here's the ironic thing. President Trump wants a safe and secure border. He's made cheap political points out of that point. Be quite candid. Everybody wants a secure border, but he's put it front and center not only in his campaign, but in his administration. You want to destabilize the border, and if you want to destabilize our southern neighbor, continue the harsh rhetoric, encourage President Peña Nieto and others to diversify their foreign direct investment, invite adversaries, true adversaries of our country to get a beachhead in Mexico's economy. That is the surest and most direct way to destabilize our border, destabilize our economy. And I hope we have time to talk about the nexus between a secure border and economic growth hope, and jobs with people in Mexico, and frankly, our side of the border. The last thing I'll say about this, he's playing right into the hands of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. We have a presidential election year in July, next year in Mexico, federal elections. And I can tell you AMLO, as his nickname is, is no friend necessarily of the United States. I'll be honest, he's a Hugo Chavez wannabe. Does Mr. Trump really want that in the South, uh, uh, in our southern border? Is that what he wants? But he's creating that type of political environment. And I, for one, am very concerned about that. Sure, yeah, a lot of people are. But a lot of people, you know, say elections have consequences. This is, you know, this is the reaction to, to what happened here last year. Uh, Representative Raymond, there's, there's uh, some folks in Loretta that I've talked to that are, uh, obviously, their, their livelihood rolls around NAFTA, whether they're uh, freight forwarders or in the trucking industry. Is there, is there, did Laredo put, is Laredo too dependent on NAFTA? If NAFTA went away, what would happen in your hometown? I mean, I know there's other, you know, the public sector and there's government jobs, but, you know, if this, if a, if a community puts all their, you know, most of their eggs into one basket, what happens when that goes away? I mean, how would you, how would, how would Laredo bounce back? Well, I mean, I, you know, I can't give you exact numbers, but it would, I think anybody in Laredo that sort of follows our economy would say that it'd be devastating, right? 
but again, we look at it, uh, we ask you to look at this. This is not the, the Laredo Free Trade Agreement. This is North America Free Trade Agreement. Sure. And everybody's going to get uh, hurt. It's not just going to be Laredo. We'll get hurt probably more than other areas. But, but I want to say this uh, just on your prior question. I, I, uh, I agree that, you know, I think, except for North Korea, the pre this president has attacked Mexico uh, more than any other country. And that's unfortunate, but that's, you know, that's what's happened. That's what he's done. Um, and, you know, Mexicans and, and Mexican-Americans who we, you know, who have a connection to Mexico and who live close to Mexico and we deal with Mexico so much where I'm from, uh, you know, we, we're pride. We have pride and we don't like the things that he says. Uh, and yes, uh, they'll fight back. But I'll tell you this about Mexico, my experience anyway, is they're going to work with us. They're not just going to walk away. You've got some very sophisticated folks over there, uh, not just in government, but I would say in the private sector even more so. And so they're not going to just throw up their hand, give up, walk away, and get mad and throw a tantrum. I think you're more likely to see tantrums over here in Washington than you are to see, <laughs> you know, in Mexico. I think they're very smart about, about, their, about understanding the importance of this. So it's, you know, it's, it's challenging. And, you know, when I go over there, and I'll be there next week. Uh, you know, we have to listen to the complaints of what's coming out of Washington. However, there are so many of us in, in, from the private sector in the United States and in government from the United States that do want to work with Mexico, and I would say, I guess, with Canada. So I, uh, I don't think this, this agreement is going to be ripped up and thrown in the trash can. Right. Uh, real quick. Um, before you follow up to that, but I also want you to weigh in on, on uh, AMLO and you know, the political situation in Mexico. But first, your, your response to what Mr. Chairman Aaron was saying. Well, I, I would simply add that, that uh, President Trump isn't the only one who ha who's cornered the market on uh, racist and homophobic, or excuse me, uh, xenophobic policies related to Mexico. I mean, uh, I've served in the legislature now my seventh term, and we've seen the same kind of thing here at the state level, whether it's, it's talking about additional border security at a time when um, uh, undocumented uh, immigration is at its lowest level since 1970, when we quintupled the size of the border patrol, um, only about 0.2% of all the crossings ac across the Texas-Mexico border are unauthorized, uh, yet you have uh, a constant cadence out of our state government, including uh, our governor who declares these items emergency items, pushes for a racial profiling bill that is sort of packaged in, you know, a, a, a brown narrative, and, uh, and it seems like it's been consistent, and, uh, you know, while while could that rise to the level of of, Mex of the Mexican federal government uh, doing something, uh, you know, well, detrimental so, on so I would say it's cumulative. The, the, the reason I, I raise that point is that you know Texas is the tenth, tenth largest economy in the world, and you have leaders from Texas that are sort of pursuing a xenophobic anti-Mexico mm -hmm. narrative, are not defending the bilateral relationship. Mm -hmm. I've heard crickets from our statewide leaders on. Uh, how we're treating our number one trading partner. And then on top of that, you have the, the real uh, racist and anti-Mexican narrative from the federal government. So it, it is cumulative. And I, and I would say, look, you don't treat a, a business partner. I mean, at, at my, my CEO is here, but at Civitas Capital, we have 50 employees and, and, and we enter into business relationships with a lot of different partners. We treat those partners with respect, right? 
uh, and I said in the Dallas Morning News, that's, that's not art of the deal, that's business 101. And so when you're in a, a long-term trading relationship, a 25-year business relationship with your number one, at least Texas's number one trading partner in Mexico, you approach any refinement of that agreement with respect and the pursuit of a win-win situation, not a cram-down approach, which is what our, our federal government is, is pursuing. And if you treat a business partner with disrespect, no one should be surprised if the outcome ends up badly, right? And, and that, 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 you don't have to go to the, the, the Macomb School here to learn that, right? I mean, that's, that's essential and fundamental. Um, and so I would say that the policies that we pursue, like SB4, our papers please, racial profiling bill uh, at the state level that was urged as, a, as a, an emergency by our governor or the president leading off his campaign, calling Mexicans rapists and criminals and then getting away with it. I mean, the, the way that is consumed in Mexico is, is, is palpable. And I was down there meeting with some high net worth Mexican investors recently in Mexico City. And I had one just say, look, don't, don't talk to me about my kids going to study in the US. They're going to Europe. They're gonna go study in Europe, bottom line. Because where you guys are right now in, in, uh, the, in the way you're treating uh, Mexicans in the United States, we want it, my family wants nothing to do with it. And I have heard that over and over again from high net uh, worth Mexicans that have other investment options. Believe it or not, whether you're talking the private sector or the government, Mexico has a lot of other options in part because of the 42 agreements that Mr. Uh, free trade agreement that Mr. Varela is talking about. And they've begun to hedge their bets that if this trade relationship is ripped up or withdrawn from by the United States as has been threatened on Twitter by our commander in chief, uh, that, uh, that they have other options. They can go elsewhere. Will, will it hurt them? Of course. Will it hurt us? Definitely. I want to, I want to move on real quick to, um, so we have the last 10 minutes here before we open it up to questions. Um, Ms. Arenas, there's been even, even people that, you know, that reluctantly now acknowledge that there's going to be some sort of switch to NAFTA. They talk about the techn technological advancements in the last 20 some odd years. So how, how does that play into what happens with NAFTA? I mean, what is, how big of a factor is technology going to be in whatever the three countries, whatever agreement they come to or don't come I think technology is sort of a force in all industries, I mean, whether inside NAFTA or outside NAFTA. And when it comes to manufacturing, it's really the dominating force of really over the last, since the late 1970s. Uh, technology has been making such inroads into manufacturing and, just, you know, that it's been displacing, the, the majority of workers that have been displaced in manufacturing have been displaced through technology, we believe, and not for other reasons. Um, so not due to free trade agreements or, or, or other factors so much as, as technology. And now we're starting to see the technological changes move into the service sector as well, where it's also disrupting and displacing workers. So it's sort of becoming a broader and broader phenomenon, and we can expect to see it in every industry in a pervasive way. So I think we also have to temper our expectations if we think, for example, that uh, you know, uh, turning away from free trade agreements, whether it's TPP or NAFTA or TTIP, if that's going to save U.S. manufacturing jobs, I think the more what we've seen the trend has been in the United States to the extent that we've saved manufacturing jobs, it's been to the extent that we've automated plants, made them more productive through the use of technology. So I think that that's a trend that will continue. And it's not really a story about jobs in manufacturing anymore. Okay. Um, Mr. Vidal, going back to what Mr. Anchia said earlier about um, you know, there are winners and losers in every agreement, you know, um, 
I think you all are, uh, agree that there were more winners than losers in NAFTA. But you, you, know, you, go, you, you go to Juarez often, I'm, I'm assuming. You talk, to, you talk to people on the ground there, the people in the Maquilas. You know, you, I'm sure you've come across with people whose wages have suffered because of this free trade agreement. So what, what is the solution? I mean, isn't there something we can do, even though there's a smaller portion of people that are affected? Is there, isn't there something that can, some sort of new solution that we could come up with moving forward? Or is it just, you know, is it a game of some winners, some losers, and that's just the way it goes? Yeah, I'm always happy to be in Ciudad Juarez. I go there probably at least on average once or twice a week. So we have this interchange. It's very, very normal in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And we're really one community along with southern New Mexico. Um, you know, look, here's the good news with the border area. Um, El Paso, uh, its economic growth was 3.3% uh, year over year. That ranks its second in Texas. Second in Texas in overall job growth and almost number one in job growth. Wages are steadily increasing because of the labor demand uh, in El Paso. In Ciudad Juarez, uh, the official government unemployment rate, as reported, below 4%. Whether you believe it or not, it's still very low. Wages are continuing, continuing to increase in Ciudad Juarez. There's a burgeoning middle class developing in Ciudad Juarez. And if you go to any mall or any restaurant in El Paso, you're going to see a lot of Chihuahuense, a lot of Chihuahua license plates of people who now have disposable income, who are saving and investing and spending money on our side of the border, and conversely, vice versa. That's just the way our dynamic works. Again, I, I grew up there. I have many generational uh, roots in that area, and it's just second nature to us how we have this interchange. Before NAFTA, the unemployment rate in El Paso County was over 10%, and see that Juarez government estimates are around 20%. So it's providing jobs, hope, and opportunities for, for people in the borderplex region. Two very quick points. Yes, we want to focus on the 400,000 jobs in Texas that are directly reliant on bilateral trade with Mexico, but I want to point out a very important thing, is that in the states of Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio and Wisconsin, and Michigan, states that Mr. Trump won, get this, 700,000 jobs rely directly on trade with Mexico, primarily that automotive supply chain. So if Mr. Trump wants to get reelected and he wants to destroy jobs, uh, he better be careful about those almost three-quarter of a million jobs in the Great Lakes region that were absolutely critical to his, real, to his first election. That's what we need to talk about as leaders in Texas. That's not only a Texas issue, NAFTA uh, and, and job opportunities are a nationwide issue. And, and that's often forgotten in the, in the debate. And, and just let me jump in there. Like polling on trade, I mean, we're, we're sort of sometimes operate from the position that trade is unpopular. Trade is wildly popular and NAFTA is wildly popular. There was some polling put out last week that, that shows that strong majorities in Canada, the United States, and Mexico are pro-NAFTA. E even in the United States, with all of the negative rhetoric from the president, it's close to 60% approval. Representative Raymond, uh, from, a, from a Laredo perspective, and, and you're right, you know, Laredo Customs District, which extends from Laredo down to Brown's, I mean, that's the busiest in the port, uh, you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. But th there seems to be uh, what's lacking from the conversation is the topic of, of infrastructure. Um, you know, your, your current mayor, your former mayor, county judge, they, you know, everybody is talking about, about wait times. 
um, talking about, uh, it's also an environmental issue, right? Those trucks are idling and you know you can't turn them off. And um, So is it, do you think, as much as you follow this issue, do you think that that's a, that's a topic that's lacking as far as boosting infrastructure, at least on the U.S. side, which a lot of people also say would contribute to a, to a more secure border? Well, do you mean that we should have more? Yes, we, we have right. a proposal to, uh, to expand the World Trade Bridge, sure. basically double it. It's a proposal that's up in Washington right now because they're, they're funding transportation projects around the, uh, around the country. And so Congressman Quad is pushing very hard for that. We, we've all, all of us have gone up to Washington. I've gone up there, the mayor, the county judge, et cetera. So if we do that, um, you know, that'll be good for the economy right. because trade will, will move more quickly. Uh, we'll have uh, pre-inspections. Uh, pre uh, for example, more pre-inspections. We're, we're developing a, a, a faster pre-inspection lane right through the middle of world trade. So, you know, um, it's, just, it's just whether or not uh, the folks up in Washington, because that's where the big dollars come from, want to invest in that part of the infrastructure. If they do, it'll, it'll, it'll be good. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's infrastructure is also, I mean, the, the, the pilot project, I guess it's been expanded now to have private businesses from, from WADIS to pitch in to pay for, for, toll, or for more customs officers. I mean, I mean, you think about that. <laughs> the federal government asked, was asking the private sector to put in their own money to pay for faster inspections. Um, and what actually happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, it ended up actually being the city of El Paso they put into those. So it was a public-public pu public partnership instead of a public-private partnership. So <laughs> That's right. You so, forgot the last. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, they forgot one yeah, of the elements. So what do, what do you see in, in what you're following along as far as infrastructure? Because I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I've passed a BOTA and PDN, and so, you know, sometimes you think, well, you know, I'm sitting here for an hour. They got eight lanes that are shut down. And they got six that are open. What's yeah. the deal? Well, you know, I was right front and center in my prior job, as, as you said, Julian, in my uh, introduction, as Cabinet Secretary of Economic Development in New Mexico. Um, Santa Teresa San Jeronimo is a border crossing just uh, west of downtown uh, uh, El Paso in Juarez. Uh, very fast-growing port. We strategically set up uh, that to grow quickly. Um, as an aside, New Mexico six years ago did less trade with Mexico than New Hampshire did. That's where we were at six years ago. New Mexico, very quickly, strategically, we implemented a plan to work with our southern neighbors, and New Mexico became, a, uh, became number one in the country in jobs growth, export-related jobs growth, and an export growth period. It's now uh, created thousands of jobs in that little area that, that I just mentioned. But what we did uh, was create a master plan binational community, uh, 70,000 acres. This is how you, I think, work with Mexico. We worked with our counterparts in the state government in 2013, signed a memorandum of, uh, of agreement where we master planned 70,000 acres on both sides of the border. It's almost a clean slate, so you can master plan roads, future ports of entry, future rail crossings. You can have green spaces, industrial areas, residential areas, and do this in a bilateral manner. And it's been wildly successful, in my humble opinion. And uh, part of that, of course, is border security that we uh, put into this, this agreement. But the bottom line is, is that I would take it one step further. What we need to be doing is the expansion of pre-clearance programs, which is what we did in San Jeronimo and Santa Teresa. It's been wildly successful. You can increase commerce while at the same time increase border security. You do it through technology, not a 40-foot wall. Mm -hmm. and, and there are ways you can do it, innovative ways. And that's that, that, that pre-clearance program that we have there, I would love to see duplicated along the entire 2,000-mile uh, U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I'm going to uh, ask one last question. If you guys want to start lining up for, for questions from the audience. Uh, and again, I'll ask for, for questions um, 
not comments and everybody keep it nice and no booing or hissing. That's what we have Twitter for, as I said earlier on. <laughs> so, um, but but the, the last question, uh, Ms. Reynes, there was a, a, a panel discussion on NAFTA at the state capitol last week and uh, our honorable general consul from Mexico said, well, you know, there are political considerations to take into as far as the timeline. Um, obviously, you know, people on this, uh, on this side of the border are obviously looking at when something is going to come up and, and the, the Canadians are a little bit more mellow. They're like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll kind of take this slowly. But in your opinion, when is something going to get, when are we going to see some sort of final product or close to final product? Um, and, you know, as Mr. Varela said, the third uh, round of negotiations begun in earnest, I'm assuming, this, uh, just recently. So do you have any idea when something is going to be available to? I think the binding constraint is going to be the presidential elections in Mexico. So that campaigning, I think, takes off when they announce their candidates, is it in March? Uh, and so I think. Elections in June. Yes, but the official campaign, I think, right. starts in March. And so I think we, it'll have to be wrapped really realistically. We need to wrap up by the end of the year. OK, OK, so OK. Um, I'll go ahead and start, ma'am. Do you have a question? Hi, I'm Gloria de la Garza Rankin from uh, San Antonio. I did grow up in the Rio Grande Valley, so um, I'm, like you said, I'm, it's just a normal thing to see Mexican light license plates all over the place. Um, so my question is, if we obviously don't want to start over, um, and what and what key points are they that are causing Trump to feel that it is such a terrible deal? And what can, I mean, have we brought any options to him as to, you know, little things that we can tweak to, you know, to get it to where it's a deal that he will work with rather than just completely scrap it? Yeah. Other than campaign rhetoric in states like Michigan, <laughs> that you want, I mean, what is it exactly that, that you can offer the president, somebody can offer the president without starting over? Yeah, Gloria, let me try and answer that question. Uh, as somebody who is mystified and full disclosure, I'm, I'm, well, Full disclosure, I, I was a Republican nominee for Congress in New Mexico and came very close to winning in a very Democratic district. And I uh, was very, very disappointed to see where, the, frankly, our party has come. I'm discouraged and disgusted, quite candidly. Full, full disclosure. Um, and having been involved in electoral politics, what I'm seeing, sadly, is a lack of courage uh, in Washington. And I'm speaking, but let me, let me add just very quickly. You got to understand, Gloria, that sometimes good politics equal bad policy. And right now, it's good politics to bash Mexico for whatever reason. And I'm disgusted by it. And what we are doing is an atrocity to me. I'm just going to be candid. So let me just, I'm very candid. And that's where I feel. How do we improve it? What do we do? How do we give? a win so that it's good politics and good policy, again, uh, we can focus on a whole variety of aspects, uh, including if we're visionary about this, if we're visionary about this, we tie border security, because that's what he cares about, right, into this agreement. What I mean by that is that I am sick and tired. You come from the border area too, Gloria. I am sick and tired of the narrative of Washington saying that the border is a violent, lawless frontier. In fact, El Paso is the safest city of its size for many years running, or among the safest city of its size in the entire country. And Ciudad Juarez, per 100,000 residents, the homicide rate in Ciudad Juarez is lower than St. Louis, New Orleans, Baltimore, Detroit, and Birmingham, Alabama, the home state of our Attorney General. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed you but, up a line. Just okay, sorry. Tying border yeah. security to something that, that something with NAFTA, you think might appease President We've Trump. got to do that. We've got to okay. make that connection. Okay. Sorry for the line. It looks like, well, staying away from the politics again, but it looks like just in terms of the economics of the trade agreement, it looks like they're trying to push on the rules of origin. So they want to, so our administration wants to try to push for uh, higher requirements for U.S. content. So basically, since NAFTA is a lot of production sharing, already the U.S. content is quite high in what we import from Mexico and what we import from, from Canada. So it might be 30 to 40 percent of what we are importing is actually original U.S. content. But what's happened over time is that share of U.S. content has been going down. So I think what the administration is doing now is pointing out that and saying they don't like that. They want the U.S. content to be higher. And so I don't know if that might be something they push for, but I, I don't know. But I do want to say that any time that you go in and change uh, really uh, and try to uh, manage the content of products, then you're getting firms away from cost minimization, which is what lowers the price for consumers. So at the end of the day, what I hear when I hear about these trade agreements and people arguing about job losses and so forth, really the huge beneficiary of trade agreements is consumers. So as consumers, whether it's lower prices of televisions and cars, we're all guilty of you know, benefiting from trade agreements. And so I think we don't really hear anybody talking about the consumers, but the great beneficiaries of trade agreements are consumers. Thank you the, for, the, thank you the other thing that I would note is, is uh, you hear a lot of criticism of dispute resolution. There are three chapters related to dispute resolution. Chapter 20, which is country to country. Chapter 19, which relates to um, countervailing duties and dumping into countries. And then the one that's, I think, most controversial is, is chapter 11, which is investor state dispute resolution. And um, the negotiations that were occurring in the TPP among Canada, the US, and Mexico related to investor state dispute resolution, I think, are helpful uh, to increase transparency in that process uh, and, and make it more public. And so I think that's one of the improvements that, that could occur in, in this renegotiation. Thank you for your question. Appreciate your answers. Thank you. Sure. Hello, my name is Carlos Valdez, a senior at Texas A&M University. My question is for the panel. Can you explain your concern or hope and economic um, um, growth that um, that if NAFTA 2.0 will look like TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I know recent proposals aim um, to add rules to govern digital trade, state-owned enterprises, and currency practices. Can you touch on that? Go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just start by saying I think it was a big mistake to um, get out of TPP. TPP was the opportunity for us not only to ring fence China in the Pacific, but also engage in an improvement of NAFTA within uh, that multilateral framework with our existing North American partners. Uh, we have essentially withdrawn our leadership position in Asia, left our, uh, left our uh, allies high and dry out there, and sort of uh, foregone, have foregone the opportunity to make improvements to NAFTA within that framework. Um, I think that ironically TPP will, uh, much of the negotiations that has occurred in TPP will serve as a framework for improving the current agreement. So I don't think it was a wasted effort, um, but you can look to kind of where uh, the negotiating rounds were going in the Trans-Pacific Partnership to see where uh, we will be, we may be going, or proposals that, that, uh, that, are, um, that have uh, broad-based agreement among the three North American partners. Thank you, sir. Sure. All right, so um, one thing I found quite interesting actually is how um, you had mentioned China because I think that that illustrates how 
the benefits of NAFTA have some power and security implications for the United States and for its allies. And as we all know, trade agreements, economic cooperation can underpin other types of cooperation. Um, so my question is that if Trump were to withdraw from NAFTA and alienate Mexico, um, would it be possible that that could snowball into, like, if Mexico moves more towards China, uh, potential, like, diplomatic and military cooperation between those two countries at some point in the future as a result of that decision? I think we're seeing it already in terms of our withdrawal from the TPP. China is talking to Canada about a bilateral trade agreement. Uh, there would be overtures to, to Mexico. I think it would give rise to the anti-American left in Mexico, and we've discussed that earlier. But I, I think we have all grown very, very complacent because we've been in a rules-based trading relationship with Mexico for 25 years. And we've taken for granted the fact that we have a, a friendly neighbor to the South who, who is going to be co collaborative and cooperative on a number of different issues ranging from water to immigration. Uh, that could go away overnight if we, if we continue our hostility and pull out of this, of this relationship. I think it could give rise to folks that it would be uh, a lot harder to deal with over time. It's not only China, it's Russia. Russia is now very aggressively looking at investments into uh, Mexico, especially along the border. So you're absolutely right. As Russia, Russia and Mexico have always had, enjoyed a, a friendly relationship, I should, I should say, right, in the United States. And Russia. It's been relatively friendly, right. and uh, so again, we've taken for granted a, a friendly southern neighbor for all of these years, and, and, and we got to be careful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your question. Thank you, sir. Hi, um, my name is Scott Squires. I'm a graduate student here at UT studying public policy and journalism. Um, my, my question is specifically directed towards uh, Representative Anchia, but also please feel free to weigh in for the entire panel. Um, I kind of wanted, I'm not affiliated with these protesters here today, um, but I did read their materials as I came in and I kind of wanted to just address the elephant in the room here. It seems that their main contention or argument here is that NAFTA and other free trade agreements contribute to a glo global race to the bottom in wages and working conditions for people around the world. Um, so my question is um, essentially in a NAFTA 2.0 renegotiation, how would we square that circle um, how would we be able to provide uh, protections for, for people that are uh, affected negatively by, by free trade agreements? Um, you did mention that overall job losses were less than overall job growths, but there are still losers, and how do we, how do we protect those people? Right. It's, I mean, not an easy answer, but there's got to be one somewhere, right? Sure. Well, well I, I think a, a researcher, or you probably want to hear from a researcher more than a politician, but, but the middle class in Mexico has grown substantially since the introduction of NAFTA. I mean, there's just no doubt. Whether that's causal, one for one with NAFTA, it's an open question, but I, I think NAFTA has made a positive contribution on the lives of working people in Mexico. Uh, just in terms of foreign direct investment that has flocked to Mexico since NAFTA, since Mexico entered into this rules-based trading relationship, that's, those are billions and billions of dollars of supply chain investment, foreign direct investment, that has put a lot of people to work. I know, I know Pia's done some work on this, but I, so I, 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 you know, you can. Sounds like a handoff. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a handoff to, to someone I'll who's actually, it. who's, who's done it. the research. <laughs> this yeah. is a good one. So globalization really has been the most important way that we're lifting living standards around the world. If you look at when did China finally take off when they started opening up to the rest of the world. Um, through trade primarily, but in other ways as well. When did 
India's income finally start growing? Why is India now doing better than ever before? Why are their wages growing and opportunities growing there? Because of trade, because of opening up to the rest of the world and all the opportunities that are there. Finally, we're starting to see some economic development, some progress in Africa. But of course, why has it been so slow? Because they haven't been able to really couple, you know, get it, uh, become part of the rest of the global economy. But as they do, obviously those benefits will flow there too. So I think really what this is, um, is not about worsening living standards in other countries. In fact, the poorest countries in many cases are benefiting from these trends and the opportunities to contribute. We're gonna go over here. If you want to ask a question, you can, you can get behind this room, ma'am. Okay, so um, I know you just brought up the fact that I guess people are benefiting, um, supposedly even the losers. But I've actually, I'm from the border. My name is Cristina Gonzalez. I'm also from the Rio Grande Valley. And I'm also part of the organization Austin Tan Cerca de la Frontera. Um, and so I wanted to ask, uh, particularly uh, Rafael Anchia, that you are NAFTA's earliest, uh, you're one of NAFTA's earliest promoters and still strongly defend free trade. And yet, you have also come out strongly against anti-immigrant and anti-Latino as before. So how do you reconcile the fact that NAFTA has caused forced economic migration from Mexico and continues to exploit migrant workers at the border? Because I've been there, I've been inside their homes, I've been at the Maquilas Boros, I've toured them. You know, I've been there, so how do you reconcile the fact that these people still have to go across the border, like cross to the US to sell their, pla to sell their plasma just to feed their families? So I think it's, it's very easy to reconcile the two. I mean, the reality is like, unlike the European model where you had not only a customs union and a, um, and a, a sort of free trade zone, you had free movement of persons, right? That's one of the things that NAFTA did not do. And we have not in the United States calibrated our labor market with the needs of the transnational market, right? If, if, if we had a sort of a, an approach uh, on immigration that, that was consistent with the needs of, of the binational labor market, we wouldn't have the, the issues that we're talking about. So when you, when you say that I fight anti-immigrant legislation all day long, when you say that I promote uh, a comprehensive immigration reform all day long, because we need to align the needs of the labor market with the needs of the, the NAFTA market. And that's one thing that wasn't done in NAFTA. But it is, but it is separate. And our our domestic immigration policy, I think, could be more integrated. But it is separate and apart from what was achieved in NAFTA. Anybody else want to want to take this one? I mean, I I just I don't I don't see it quite the way you do. I mean, we all recognize that this world is becoming smaller and smaller. Globalization, as she mentioned, and for starters, if we didn't have this type of agreement, I think more people in Mexico, you wouldn't see the rise in the middle class in Mexico. Uh, you would continue to see whatever you don't like uh, about trade agreements in terms of the effect on the uh, jobs in the United States. That would continue to happen. It would happen only they'd be going somewhere else, right? They wouldn't be going to Mexico. And we wouldn't, and perhaps we wouldn't have, as was mentioned, the, uh, the states, Michigan and, and Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin and so forth, you wouldn't have those parts going into Mexico. You might even have them going to China at that point because it's too far away, or Korea, or South Korea, or what have you. So I, I don't, I, I do see them as two different things. Now, I will say that I believe that, uh, as I, I hate to paint with a broad brush, but we just went through a presidential election. I certainly believe that there are people uh, who voted up in the northern, the Great Lakes area, who voted for Donald Trump, 
because uh, they uh, felt like NAFTA killed their towns or their jobs or what have you. And, uh, and also, some of them are just prejudiced. I mean, let's just face it. And you might say that you know, maybe some of them aren't, maybe some don't care, maybe they're not anti-Mexican, but you, you certainly, I certainly got the sense that those two things converged, that they wanted an excuse to be mad at Mexican-Americans or Mexicans, and, and, and they got one. Hey, they stole our jobs. It's their fault. And I, and I don't think that's true. And I do think Mexico has benefited, and I, I don't see those two things go together. They are two separate things, as the chairman said. Uh, when we're dealing with immigration policy in the United States of America, and, and, or, or lack thereof, and we're fighting the fact that I always, I always say this to folks, or my good friends who are Republicans who feel like they have to take the positions that they do. I say, let me tell you something. United States citizens are the ones that are hiring people who are not here legally. They're the ones that are hiring them. That's why they come, right? So if you want to complain about immigration or illegal immigration, um, let me just end with it. I'll pass it on, but I'll never forget. Um, you all know who Newt Gingrich is? You know that name? Okay. After he was no longer speaker, he was giving a speech, and I watched it on CNN. I, I did. And he was doing the Q&A, and they asked him a question. They said, how would you do away with illegal immigration in the United States? He said, oh, I can tell you. He said, the first time you have someone working at a company who's not here legally, you fine them $10,000. The second time you catch that company hiring someone who's not here legally, you fine them $25,000. Not, not for the same employee, another employee. He said, the third time you catch that company hiring somebody who's not here legally, you fine them $50,000. That, he said, is how you end illegal immigration. The, and you, I mean, the chairman and I have talked about worker misclassification a lot, but I, th I, to, I guess to, to ask the question another way, would those people be coming to the United States to get hired in an underground cash economy to get misclassified as independent contractors and not I-9 employees if they had jobs in Mexico or didn't have to take those jobs away and that's why they're coming? I, I think NAFTA is creating jobs in Mexico, exponentially, in fact. And it's borne out by the, by the increase in the middle class there. Uh, what we don't have is a system that matches willing workers and willing employers in a legal system that is calibrated to the market. That's what we don't have. But that's, that we can fix. That's in our power to fix here in the United States with our immigration policy. Unfortunately, we have an irrational immigration policy that creates perverse impacts like the ones she was talking about. Yeah. Thank you for your questions. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hi, my name is Bianca Hinsfali Trejo, and I'm a UT alumna, and I'm also um, have been involved with Austin Cerca de la Frontera for eight years. And I grew up in Austin, so the title um, in English is Austin So Close to the Border, just four hours away from here. Um, we, I, I appreciate, Julian, uh, your invitation um, to have us be here today. Um, and I also appreciate that you are the only person on this panel today who even mentioned the maquiladora workers on the other side of the border. Um, that is a huge absence in a discussion on NAFTA when some of the biggest, what has come up several times as losers of this free trade agreement were workers um, on the other side of the border. So my question is for all the panelists, um, but in particular, uh, Representative from Laredo, uh, Raymond, you, um, you know, at the very beginning of the panel, you said that um, really there's nothing wrong with NAFTA and I would like to know because in Laredo many families um, live on both sides of the border um, you know we have you know families on both sides of the border so what happens to Mexican workers affects Texan workers and vice versa um, how do you justify um, impoverishing your sister city through this through promoting this um, pact which 
Immaculate workers have come out for decades. You know, they've written reports, and, and we have one if you're willing to read it, um, talking about how, contrary to what was mentioned earlier, wages have actually stagnated and decreased since 1993. So we're looking That's at a situation true. where um, people are being impoverished because of this free trade agreement that you've continued to promote. So um, how well, do you justify that? Well, uh, you know, what I believe is this. Um, I, I wish that every country in the United States, every country in the world was as strong as the United States is. It's not. And, and Mexico is not as strong as an, econ an economy as we have. They don't have um, as skilled a workforce, I, I would say, that, as we do. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, you're telling me if we didn't have NAFTA, if, if you're saying to me, if we did not have NAFTA, the people that you're talking about would be better off than they are right now, I don't, I don't agree with that. Now I'll ask her because she's really researched this a lot more than we have. I started off by saying that I couldn't really see how you could change NAFTA substantially. What changes could be made substantially to NAFTA that would make it better for the United States, which is what the president is pushing. I've, I've read you know, the folks that are representing the United States and their approach is America first, USA first, right? That's the approach they're taking. They're not thinking about Mexico, by the way. The folks who are sitting there negotiating it, representing the president, what I keep reading is America first. Now, if this agreement were not in place, do I believe the people that you're concerned about would be better off? I, I don't see that. They would I, disagree. Excuse yeah. me? They would disagree. Well, okay, I mean, well then I you know what? They ought to be for Trump. Tear up the agreement and let's see how it goes. Well, and it's, it's also important to note that the Maquillador program hails from the 1960s. I mean, this is not, the Maquillador program was nothing that NAFTA created. It's, it predates NAFTA by at least a couple of decades. And so, I mean, to the extent that there are problems related but, but to that. the industry was affected by NAFTA, obviously. I mean, was, was it Positively. Not? Positively. There are more, there are more plants, uh, manufacturing plants, on the Mexican side of the border since NAFTA right. than there were before. So I don't. I mean, there's more manufacturing going on in Mexico. And now, coupled with low uh, energy prices that we're seeing in North America, you're seeing onshoring of manufacturing in Mexico at an unprecedented clip, mainly from Asia. And so I don't, I, I, you know, to, to suggest that NAFTA is the cause for some people having uh, bad working standards, uh, to me, I, I, I don't see the correlation. Folks? That's uh, unfortunately we're out of time. I'm getting the uh, you know all done for the day, but thank you all very much for coming out and the round of applause. Great job, good job, really, really well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.